The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Standing on guard, a Toronto doctor who worked through the SARS epidemic says his small clinic's not getting enough help to prepare for the coronavirus, so he's picking up what supplies he can find himself. Bolton's version. A leak reveals former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton's take on the story at the center of the impeachment trial. A former Republican congressman says the new details should be hard for his party to ignore. Epiphany at last. After years of towing the Conservative Party line on illegal drugs, a former advisor to Stephen Harper tells us why he's had a complete change of heart and hopes others will too. Basketball legend Kobe Bryant's life was extraordinary and complex. A reporter tells us about the highs and the lows and about the daughter who died alongside him who he says was also the star's best friend. Handle with care. Quebec puts the brakes on a plan to offer medical aid in dying to people suffering as a result of their mental illness. A doctor in the province tells us why the issue is difficult to navigate. And the devil is in the details. Parents in Iceland want to name their baby Lucifer. Government officials say no, in part because there is no C in the Icelandic language. So they respond with some crafty spelling. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that knows that Beelzebub has a devil put aside for C. The first cases of coronavirus have landed in Canada. Public health officials have confirmed that a man who traveled from Wuhan, China to Toronto last week is infected. He's being treated in isolation. His wife is believed to be the second case. This morning, Ontario's chief medical officer, Dr. David Williams, spoke at a press conference. Here's part of what he had to say. In many ways, this new case isn't surprising. It's the case of the wife of the first presumptive case. This individual has been in close proximity to her husband. I'd like to stress that since arriving in Toronto, this individual has been in self-isolation. As such, the risk to Ontarians remains low. Indeed, all necessary protocols are in place to actively monitor, detect, and contain the spread of this virus. We're working closely with all levels of government to ensure a coordinated and effective response. Preparedness is such that we are well ahead of where we were back in 2003. Everybody thinks about the SARS. It's a different world, a different era now. That was Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. David Williams. Meanwhile, Dr. Paul Colford is busy preparing his Toronto Refugee Health Clinic for possible coronavirus cases. He ran an assessment centre for the SARS virus when it hit Canada in 2003, and this time he's not taking any chances. We reached Dr. Paul Colford in Toronto. Dr. Colford, how worried are you that the next case of coronavirus could walk in the doors of your clinic? Well, I am significantly concerned about that. 
We're concerned that it will come through the front doors of a community-based primary care office like it did in SARS. And uh, the only physician to die was a, a family doctor in the co- in the community. But it's a public health and public safety concern I have. All right. And so what are you doing then at your clinic to get ready for that possibility? We have um, put up all sorts of information. We have policies regarding all sorts of information for patients coming in. We now are screening at our door and are we're not going to turn anyone away. And that that's where the challenge becomes, uh, is to define who is at risk and to get them referred off to wherever we're getting them referred to and uh, the hospital, whatever. So we've taken every reasonable precaution that we can to protect our patients, to protect our staff and their providers, and to try to ensure that our center, our clinic, does not go down and become quarantined because then what use is it to anyone? Mm-hmm. You've been comparing this to the situation of the SARS debacle in 2003, and it's, as many have pointed out, it was just so badly uh, handled in Ontario, and that's why there ended up being so many cases. And is it any better? Are you saying that the province of Ontario is handling this any better than it did during SARS? The short answer is no, and I don't want to create alarm, but the no is because Um, For example, we, as of Friday, did not have any information sent our way, no, by public health or by the hospital. We didn't receive that. And this was very eerily deja vu all over again, like SARS. And the community level has not received what the hospital levels and the airport, and we had to, uh, once again, go looking for information as we did during SARS. And the other problem that we've had is after over a week ago, early last week, three weeks into this, ordering and deciding we're going to do something, ordering supplies, they were promised at the end of last week, they were promised again over the weekend, promised again for today. Nothing has arrived in terms of masks for our staff and patients, um, that sort of thing. So I so wait a second. So wait, just make so you haven't yeah. received any of that. There's a basic, not just like, but we're talking about masks here. Talking about basic kind of public health requirements for your clinic. You haven't got that from from the province, from the the health department. No, and we don't know where to get it. I understand you went to Home Depot to get some of this supply over the weekend. I did. I went there primarily for the physical barriers we were putting up, and these are, talk about barriers, these are safety measures. And I got thinking about it, and it's on my mind about all of the eyeglassware because it can enter through the eyes very easily, the virus. And I thought, hey, wait a minute here. And I went over to the safety goggles area, was able to find good quality eye safety masks, a respirator mask that was N95. And when I spoke to the to the worker at the, at the Home Depot, he said it's been flying off the shelves. So I suppose we're not alone. What do public health authorities say in response when you draw, draw attention to, to this inadequacy? Well, we drew the attention in an official phone call with our hospital on Friday last week, and there was not a reassuring reply that they were set up to handle supplies, infection protocols, 
And I'm sorry to say that, but it, it's what it is. And it's, they weren't able to talk about where we would find the information, for example, as in SARS, about how to decontaminate an office, a community office. And I say that because during SARS, it was left up to us to go into the office of a, of a, that, that fell to SARS and, and do the disinfecting. And I don't think that's, that's acceptable. If I may, you, you sound tired, maybe exasperated. Is that an accurate assessment? It has been a very, yes, it is. It has, but so are others, I'm sure, and our staff. Uh, we have gone to skeleton staff this week with the second announcement. So our non-essential medical services are, those staff are working the telephone lines with their patients and other methodologies to not necessarily have to be at the center here. Because the fewer the number in here, the less risk and the less commotion and spread of any potential virus. And it is tiring and the masks are tiring and the extra processes are tiring and the cleanup and the disinfecting and involving our cleaner and her safety is tiring. And it, But it is absolutely essential right now. And last time in SARS, the post-mortem, pardon my pun, on SARS was that the communication was a major problem. And it was stressed that the next time round, which is here now, this needs to be different. It hasn't been different. You're saying that this, no lessons have been learned from SARS. You're saying that this is just as bad as it was in the SARS communications. On the line of communications to community offices where patients come for their care, in that sense, I haven't seen an improvement from when SARS hit. Dr. Colford, we will leave it there. And of course, we're following this story. And I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Take care. Dr. Paul Colford runs the Canadian Centre for Refugee and Immigrant Healthcare. We reached him in Toronto. Not long ago, Benjamin Perrin says he subscribed to conservative party thinking about supervised injection sites and illicit drug use in general. That is, that drugs themselves are the problem, and that criminalizing those drugs is, by and large, the solution. But Stephen Harper's former criminal justice advisor says he's had a major change of heart. In an editorial published this weekend in the Calgary Herald, Mr. Perrin says he now believes safe injection sites are a much better prescription than prohibition or policing. We reached Benjamin Perrin in Vancouver. Mr. Perrin, what's brought you to this epiphany, if I can use that word, on safe injection sites? Well, like many people over the last few years, I continue to follow the news stories, and they started out looking kind of isolated. People were dying of overdose deaths in our city of Vancouver, where I live now. And as I saw the numbers continue to grow, it started to concern me uh, for two reasons. One, I'd you know, been part of conservative government that had, um, you know, government had set up the current approach to drug policy in Canada. It was clearly not working. And the second thing was that we were really, as a country, going about our business and not doing anything really beyond talking about it. And it, it bothered me that I didn't 
seemed to affect me that so many people were dying in my community. So I did something that I hadn't really done before, and that was I, I prayed about it. I asked God to kind of give me a heart of compassion. I, I prayed for him to take my heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, and I started talking to people about the issue, and then I decided I was going to do something about it. I realized no one else um, in the law school that I met was researching it, and you got into the data, the information, the, the actual reviews, the peer-reviewed studies, the evidence. And so uh, at what point did you start to consult that and realize that your view on this had been ill-informed? The problem with people like me is that I had allowed my own political ideology to take the place of evidence. And the, the problem we have right now as a country as well um, in very antiquated views towards drug policy is that it's really based on, you know, blaming people. Uh, it's it's very critical and harsh of people who use drugs. And that sort of spirit of, you know, that we're better than them was something that I, that I suffered from too. And it was only when I had this change of heart, I could be open to changing my mind. But this evidence didn't show up in the past year or so. This has been around since the first safe injection sites were developed. And they have been, exactly. they've been doing these reviews. There are, as you point out in your article, more than 100 peer-reviewed studies overwhelmingly showing that safe consumption sites have saved lives and that there haven't been any overdoses at the safe injection sites. Why was it so difficult to get that evidence? What I've come to conclude is that we as a society view people who use drugs as less worthy. We, we as a society don't care what the evidence says. We have treated them with condemnation. And I went through a journey of, of actually speaking with people who use drugs, meeting with them, their family members of, of people whose children have overdosed and died and, and seen them, seen their tears. I talked to the police and the judges and the, the prosecutors and the border guards who all say that the, the current system is failing on, on multiple fronts. Right, but you advised the Stephen Harper government, and when Stephen Harper vowed to continue to fight expansion of safe injection sites, uh, that he said the data are very mixed on the results and that, uh, that, that this was going to bring drugs into communities if they allowed these sites. So where did, what was that based on? You were in that government from 2012 to 2013. Where were they getting their ideas from? Well, I, I would love to know. I've never seen any conservative politician ever provide any evidence to back up any of those claims that you just mentioned. There, there, the fact is there is no evidence. That's why. I was essentially someone who raised up, was raised going to church, but politics was really my, my God. It was power, and people get in power, and they want to keep power. And when you join a political party, you sign on for the whole the whole smorgasbord. So I had never given any thought to drug policy. It was dogma. It was drugs cause crime and destruction. That was the conservative mantra. And therefore, we need to make them illegal. And anything that could possibly facilitate them needs to be you know, quashed. That's the mindless thinking that goes into that form of policy. And it is costing lives. And we need to emphasize here, the, the opioid crisis has, has began under Prime Minister Stephen Harper and accelerated and has, is continuing under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who similarly refuses to follow evidence on, on best practices of what to be done. There's been some change, but he still has said that he's more concerned uh, essentially about politics than he is about the scientific evidence. But the Conservatives take the prize for having the absolute worst drug policy we could have could have imagined. You know, Trudeau has gone and seen some of these places, I believe, but I don't believe Premier Kenny or Premier Ford, have they gone and met with family members who've, who've, whose loved ones have died? Have they talked to addictions experts? Like, wh where is their information coming from? Um, the fact is that, you know, we as a society are treating people who use substances 
um, like garbage. And I believe that more people need to stand up who have not yet spoken out on this issue, who are politicians currently and former, and say that the, our current approach to dealing with drug policy is costing lives. I just want to, to point out, though, that the, though there, there is not, has not been enough to allow for safe injection sites, as you point out, that the Trudeau government supports the safe consumption sites, and that he has been critical of Doug Ford in his resistance to that. So that's there. But the policy, the anti-drug strategy of the the decade previous that led to uh, more arrests, longer sentences, compulsory minimum sentences, what effect do you think that had on people who continued in that lifestyle and probably people, we lost lives because of that? The post-mortem, and that's not an inappropriate term, the post-mortem on the opioid crisis is going to be written years from now. And we are in the middle of this crisis now. And I have come to conclude both from my head and my heart, that our current approach is, is wrong and it is costing lives today. People are dying today because of what we still haven't done and what we're continuing to do. And that's really the priority that I have is to hopefully engage Canadians in this conversation that people use drugs because of many reasons, but the science shows that many of them are are horrifically suffering from you know, things like childhood trauma, which drastically increases the likelihood of people becoming addicted to substances, genetics, mental health disorders, you know, intergenerational trauma. People just can't stop using and blaming them and demonizing them. And politicians, conservative politicians trying to win votes off doing that is, is unconscionable. It is, it is sick and wrong, and we need to stop it. And people need to stand up within various conservative parties and within the constituencies who support these leaders and let them know they're not willing to tolerate these policies of ignorance that continue to cause people to die. It has to end now. All right. An extraordinary admission, uh, quite the epiphany. And uh, Mr. Perrin, I really appreciate hearing about this from you and, and speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Benjamin Perrin was Stephen Harper's top criminal justice advisor from 2012 to 2013. He's now a law professor at the University of British Columbia and the author of the forthcoming book, Overdose. We reached him in Vancouver. And there's more on this story on the As It Happens website, cbc.ca slash AIH. As you know, Chris Howden is my new co-host here at As It Happens. But before he joined me on the airwaves and sits beside me here. He was our writer and pun master extraordinaire. Okay, I was a pun maker ordinaire. (laughs) You know, you're being modest and I don't appreciate it because (laughs) you know and I know how great you are at this. And to celebrate your new gig, we made a couple of videos showing off your punning skills. In one of them, we play, you and I play a little game we like to call the As It Mm -hmm. Happens Pun Challenge that is inspired by that card game Punderdome. Which was grueling. (laughs) Uh, Not your company, the game. We also made a video showing off the best puns submitted by our listeners. To see those videos, head to cbc.ca slash AIH and have a laugh. Or check out CBC As It Happens on Twitter or Facebook. He was described as a prodigy, a hero, a villain, and an icon. But whatever you thought of Kobe Bryant, there's no doubt that he changed the game of basketball. On Sunday, the former L.A. Lakers legend was killed in a helicopter crash in Calabasas, California. He was 41. All nine people on board were killed, including Mr. Bryant's 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. The other victims included two of Gianna's basketball teammates, Mr. Bryant's assistant coach, 
a junior college baseball coach, and the pilot. They were all on their way to a game at Mr. Bryant's Basketball Academy, northwest of Los Angeles. Kobe Bryant signed with the L.A. Lakers at the age of 17 and stayed with the team for 20 years. During that time, he won five NBA championships and two Olympic gold medals. After his retirement in 2016, Mr. Bryant ventured into writing children's books and making films. In 2018, he won an Oscar for his short film, Dear Basketball, inspired by a poem he wrote announcing his retirement after the 2015-2016 season. Dear Basketball. From the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. A love so deep, I gave you my all. From my mind and body to my spirit and soul. As a six-year-old boy, I'm deeply in love with you. I never saw the end of the tunnel. I only saw myself running out of one. And so I ran. I ran up and down every court after every loose ball for you. You asked for my hustle. I gave you my heart. Because it came with so much more. I played through the sweat and the hurt. Not because challenge called me. But because you called me. I did everything for you. Because that's what you do when someone makes you feel as alive as you've made me feel. You gave a six-year-old boy his Laker dream. And I'll always love you for it. That was part of Dear Basketball, the Oscar-winning animated short film written and narrated by Kobe Bryant. Arash Markazi is a sports columnist with the Los Angeles Times who covered Mr. Bryant's life and career throughout the years. We reached him today in Miami. Arash, as you know, since the crash, there have been so many testimonies, so many people, very emotional online talking about this. What what effect did it have on you to learn that Kobe Bryant had been killed in that helicopter crash? It was tragic. I mean, he was someone that I covered during the course of his 20-year career. He was someone that I got to know a little bit more as a friend in retirement. I, I knew his family uh, Gigi as well. I mean, she was always there with him. I mean, she was always by his side towards the end of his career and in retirement. So just devastating, still doesn't seem real. You have written in your columns about retirement for Kobe Bryant, that the speculation was this is not the kind of man who retires. But you found that, that, he, that he found something else in his life. He had, he had sort of found himself to be a, a, a family man more than ever before. Is that right? Exactly. You know, one of the things that we talked about prior to the season, I sat down with him in October and I said, you know, I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of games you've gone to since you've retired in 2016. And he said, if I go to a game, that's one night that I can't spend with my kids. And I, and I love being with my family and I love being with my kids. And so um, he lost a lot of those moments during the course of his career just because of the demands of playing. And so 
you said, you know, they're my focus now. And so he wasn't one of these former players who wanted to go on to be a coach or a general manager or a team executive. He wanted to be a father. And, and he loved the fact that Gianna loved the game that he loved. That was, of course, Gianna is the one of his four daughters who was with him and died in that helicopter crash as well. He was very involved with his kids and their sports ambitions, all being girls. What, what was that all about? Exactly. You know, uh, Natalia was a volleyball player and Gianna was a basketball player. And he had two younger daughters that I'm sure would have played something at some point. But he allowed them to go choose whatever sport that they wanted to play in. Because of Gianna, he began to go to more games, and he would sit courtside with her, and they would talk about the game, and they would talk about player movements and adjustments, and and she would always ask very specific questions. You know, that was his best friend. I think if you if you were to say, you know, he loved his family, but the one person he spent the most time with was Gianna. What do you know about his 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 life, his ambitions? We know that he was very ambitious. Ambitious people say he was stitched together with ambition, and that. He wanted to. He didn't make any any uh, secret of the fact that he he had he wanted to to exceed the legendary Michael Jordan. What, what was what was what, what drove him on the court and in life? Yeah, I mean, he was the hardest worker that I had ever seen. And you're, you're talking about a player who had God-given ability and talent and things of that nature. But he was always the first one on the court. He was always the first one at practice. I mean, I mean, his stories about his practices are legendary. How, you know, before the sun comes up, Kobe's already in the gym and working out and getting in his shots. And so um, Kobe did everything in his power to put himself at least in that conversation. Shaquille O'Neal at one point called him a showboat, and um, others said that he was he dominated the ball. What was his relationship with other players? Yeah, that was part of his legacy. You know, I mean, I think he he had a, a very um, high standard, and he was very hard on his teammates. And I think um, not a lot of teammates maybe got to know him personally the way that they would get to know Shaq, for example. But that was just who he was, and he demanded a lot of his teammates. And and when you performed well and you met his expectations, there was no better teammate. But he was extremely hard on the players that he uh, played with, and sometimes that would rub some people the wrong way. But he was an ultimate competitor, and I think that's why I I always thought that it would have been a mistake for him to be a coach because there there was no way he was going to coach players to have the same intensity that, that he did. He had controversy in his life, too, as you know. There was the charge of felony sexual assault in Colorado in 2003. Uh, The case was later dropped when the accuser decided not to testify, and he he settled a civil suit with her out of court. And did he ever talk to you about that? No, you know, I covered him that season when he, you know, didn't really comment on it. But that 2003-2004 season where he would, you know, go to the courthouse in Colorado and then get on a plane and uh, play that night or practice that night. It was a very surreal season uh, just to see someone in a courtroom in Colorado and then come back. I think he always knew that it would be a part of his story on how he like overcame that or got past that was was a big turning point or, or, or a crossroads in his life and his career. Um, you know, I will say that the player and the man that, that I covered towards the end of his career and in retirement was not the same player. I think there was a moment in life where maybe he felt that he was above it all. And I think, uh, listen, being a father, being a husband, uh, you know, changes you. It, it was a part of his life that he knew that he could not totally 
a race, but I, I think he made it his goal moving forward to kind of reshape his whole life. Do you think that having daughters changed his view of what happened in that Colorado hotel room in 2003? I can't speak to specifically about the hotel room that night in Colorado, but I think having daughters did change him and the way that he behaved maybe and, and just his outlook on life. I, I know one of the things that some fans would always tease him about is like, when, when are you going to have a son to like carry on your name? And he looked at Gianna one time and we were together in Las Vegas. And she goes, she's going to be the one that does that. Arash, I really appreciate you sharing your memories of Kobe with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Arash Markazi is a sports columnist with the Los Angeles Times. We reached him in Miami. Kobe Bryant, a five-time NBA champion with the LA Lakers, died yesterday in a helicopter crash. He was 41. The Lakers were supposed to play their next game in Los Angeles on Tuesday, but tonight the NBA announced that it's postponing that game out of respect for the team, which it says is still deeply grieving. And you can read more about this story on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. In the U.S. Senate today, Donald Trump's defense team laid out its case. But after new revelations on the weekend, it's hard not to think that case just got a lot harder to make. In a piece in the New York Times yesterday, there were details of an unpublished manuscript by former National Security Advisor John Bolton. According to the article, Mr. Trump told Mr. Bolton that he wanted to withhold hundreds of millions in military aid from Ukraine until officials there helped with investigations into his political opponents which, of course, is the issue at the center of the impeachment trial. Mickey Edwards has written about the trial for The Times today. He's a visiting professor at Princeton University and a former Republican member of the U.S. House of Representatives. We reached Mr. Edwards in Washington, D.C. Mr. Edwards, what did you think when you read these revelations in The New York Times about John Bolton? Well, my first thought was that Bolton has been, the indication was, I think they're they're putting out the story that it got leaked, but it didn't get leaked. You know, John Bolton wanted the story out there, and and he was frustrated because he'd been saying he would honor a subpoena. You know, in other words, please, please call me, and that didn't happen. And so I think the timing was perfect because he he was present. He was in the meetings with the president, and and, uh, he was very very offended by what was happening, and he wants to be able to tell the Senate about it. So, so what exactly, I mean, it's the same story as we've heard, but what is it, what is Mr. Bolton's, this, this leak of what's in his book, what he reports on, how does it change it, or how does it advance the case against Mr. Trump? Well, it changes it tremendously because the the president's lawyers in the Senate in, in the impeachment hearings have been saying uh, that, well, it's all out of context or it's, this is not what he said. And, you know, it's all secondhand. Somebody says they heard somebody else say this. Uh, and this is direct. But the, the same arguments to refute with Mr. Bolton or to challenge what Mr. Bolton is saying exist, don't they? That, uh, well, in the end, Ukraine got the money and uh, there was no investigation into the Bidens. You have President Trump's claim that, yes, I, I, I wanted to investigate corruption. What's wrong with that? So does Mr. Bolton in any way uh, give a value judgment to this? Does he, is he condemning well, it in your view? 
Yeah, it is. Well, first of all, he doesn't need to condemn it because withholding the the money without congressional approval uh, is illegal. Uh, secondly, what Bolton is able to say is that the, the withholding of the money was not what Mulvaney and the others have said, which we do that all the time. You know, we want to make sure they're following certain policies. You know, he, he can verify that the president said this was in order to get the investigation of Joe Biden and Biden's family. How is this going to change that impeachment trial? You know, if we lived in a rational world, if we had never created political parties or if we had, you know, some members of the U.S. Senate who had some spine and and cared about the country more than they care about their reelection, it would change it tremendously because I think this would almost certainly guarantee that the president would be convicted and removed from office. As it is, will it really make a difference? Looking at the behavior of the people in the Senate, Mitch McConnell saying he's coordinating everything with the White House, uh, it's probably not going to make a big difference. It, it will certainly tell the American people who have, by and large, been in favor of having witnesses and, you know, get material and, and hear the truth. Uh, I think it might make some of those who might have otherwise voted for Donald Trump to be much more reluctant to do so uh, when it comes out that, you know, uh, he's been lying and, and that there there's a very well-respected conservative uh, eyewitness who, who can prove, you know, he was lying. But, you know, long run, I wish I had more confidence that the Senate or the, uh, or the Trump supporters generally in the country uh, were going to be swayed by this. But is it more likely that John Bolton will testify? Will there be enough senators who say, yeah, we want to hear some witnesses, we want to hear from John Bolton in particular? Do you think that's more likely now? I think it could be. You only need you know, a very small number to uh, come forward and say, yeah, we're not saying that we're going to find him guilty, but we want to hear the witnesses. Uh, So, yeah, it probably marginally increases the chances of that. Uh, But it's amazing how impervious these Republican senators seem to be to to fact, to concerns about uh, the Constitution or the law. So I don't know. But I think, yes, marginally, I think it puts more pressure on the Susan Collinses and the Cory Gardners and others like that uh, to say, okay, I will go along with, with saying that we must have witnesses. Why do you think that you're, I mean, you're a Republican. You see the, that the evidence the Democrats produced in the House makes sense. So why, why do you, when you say they're, they're Republicans are impervious to facts, why do you think they don't see it the same way as you do? I think there are two different reasons. One is uh, is policy-related. I think there is one group of senators, maybe a large group, who say, I cannot stand this man, I cannot stand what he says, and he lies all the time, but, you know, these policies we think are right for America, and that if we remove him from office, you know, that Mike Pence won't be as strong, the Democrats will be stronger, uh, and we won't get the policies we want. But then there's another group, I mentioned, you know, the problem of political parties, is that they like being senators. They like having people people to say, yes, sir, uh, Senator, uh, let me get the door for you. Let me, uh, they like standing up in front of an audience, getting applause, and, and the, you know, they know that with our political system, they could be taken on in a party primary, you know, matter even if the general public overwhelmingly supports them. In a primary, they can be taken off the ballot. 
Okay, uh, but 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 but, it, e- but ego aside, I mean, you're, it's cowardice. You, but, it's not, it's cowardice. But isn't it the stakes are so high? I mean, when you think that if they to to go along with this with with the impeachment process, then it's to lose everything. You you you, you, you lose the White House. You lose possibly the Senate. You already lost the House as Republicans. I mean, aren't the stakes just too high to see to see it this way? It depends on whether what you're concerned most about is your party and your policies or whether you're concerned about the United States and its constitution. But if you believe uh, that your party and your policies are the right right ones for the country, then isn't that wouldn't that contribute to the idea that I, I have to just turn a blind eye to this because the ends justify the means? Yeah, actually they took an oath of office, you know, to uphold the constitution. And the constitution means you know, it is about process and how you make decisions and what decisions are uh, not permissible. And so, you know, God help us if we ever get to the point that nobody cares about the rules, nobody cares about the law. All they care about is whatever I have to do uh, in order to hold power. We will leave it there, Mr. Edwards. I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Carol. Bye. That was Mickey Edwards in Washington, D.C. He's a former Republican congressman from Oklahoma. He's also a visiting professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. In a statement, John Bolton denied any, quote, coordination with the New York Times or anyone else regarding the appearance of information from his book, unquote. Quebec's government has decided it was a little too hasty about expanding access to medical aid in dying. Last week, the provincial health minister announced that, under some circumstances, her government would allow people to apply for a physician-assisted death to end suffering caused by a mental illness. The announcement came as both the provincial and federal governments grapple with a court ruling. The ruling struck down a requirement that applicants be near the end of their lives and suffering from conditions that will cause their deaths. But this morning, the minister backtracked. Plans to expand the policy to include mental illness are now suspended indefinitely. Dr. Yves Robert is the secretary of the Collège des Médecins du Québec. We reached him in Montreal. Dr. Robert, what do you make of the health minister's reluctance to make medical aid in dying available to people who are suffering from mental illness? Well, it's really a new chapter uh, with the removal of the criteria of being at the end of life. Uh, obviously, it raises the issue of uh, mental health that was uh, already under discussion uh, when the uh, Chamber of Commons uh, discussed the issue of the change in the criminal law uh, in 2016. But it was removed because there is no uh, mental health condition that uh, leads directly to death. So uh, removing this criteria, it raises the uh, this issue again. And the real difficulty uh, with this new chapter is that there are many conditions, uh, mental health conditions, where the hope of death is one of the symptoms of the disease itself. So it's very hard to make a difference between a clear and informed consent to made 
and the symptom of a disease itself. For people who don't know or don't remember the rules for this or what, how, how it's possible to get a medically assisted death, the Canadian law that, that has, was ch- successfully challenged was the idea that you had to have something, that, that your death was imminent, that you, you were going to die from whatever condition you had and so that you could get an assisted death uh, in exactly. advance of that. But that's been struck down. So now the issue is that, well, what do you do with people who are suffering, severely suffering from mental illness? Yeah, that's the issue. And, and the question is, how much is there a suffering and how much is there no cure to that suffering? To be sure that there is really no way to help the patient coping with this suffering. So we have to think about that before offering uh, the possibility of a patient to ask for MAID for these particular issues. So these uh, clinical guidelines uh, are uh, required but uh, are not yet developed. We'll just remind people MAID is medical aid in dying. Now, you, you point out another complication, which is that a symptom or a result of mental illness quite often is a desire to die. So how do you resolve that in making this decision? We are not going to do that alone. We are we are already asked Quebec Association of Psychiatrists to uh, develop a working group to try to develop these kind of uh, criteria, clinical criteria that will help the clinical physician to assess this difference between the desire that's linked uh, with the mental health disease with a real clear and informed consent to have made. And one of the main issue here is to be sure that the patient has tried unsuccessfully to control his sufferance with other uh, scope of treatments that are made available uh, up to now. Is there any jurisdiction, any state uh, that allows for a medically assisted death for someone who is suffering from mental illness? Um, Well, there are, in in our knowledge, two countries uh, where uh, this is possible, Netherlands and Belgium, and, and that for decades. And what we see, even if it's possible for that, it is very few patients who uh, have access to that. Over 20 years only, for instance, in Belgium, 400 patients had access to that because of mental health troubles that were resistant to treatment. Uh, so it's, we, we expect that it will be really a few persons that will be, uh, for which a demand of made will be accepted. And we need to define these persons uh, to help the clinicians in uh, accepting or refusing to provide uh, made in these circumstances. The, the Quebec minister's original announcement was met with dire warnings that people who are already vulnerable because of mental illness could actually be put at risk of being killed. What kinds of safeguards would Quebec doctors want to see in place to to protect the vulnerable? Well, Bill, before safeguards, which is probably required more by patients and families to be sure that there will no, no abuse, is uh, to have clinical baseline and clinical guidelines to know how to assess these demands and uh, how on what basis we can accept or refuse these demands. Uh, so this is precisely uh, the kind of guidelines we have to develop, and that will be developed over the next few weeks uh, with the help of psychiatrists. Uh, and having these criteria, we'll have to discuss uh, if it's something acceptable for the society. So this is why we see with a so good eye uh, the decision made uh, public this morning by the Minister of Health saying that we will take the time to do the consultations uh, with everyone to be sure that we have a consensus here on not
not only the principle of offering made to uh, mental health patients, but also to be sure on how it will be done. And I think it's it's wise to do that, and it will help physicians to uh, be more at ease receiving this kind of demand if there is a social consensus of that. But we know it was already difficult for uh, patients to find physicians who would agree, who would help them with a medically assisted death when it, when the criteria were that the death had to be foreseeable. So without yeah. that criterion, how much more difficult is it going to be for people to find physicians who are willing to, to perform this operation? Well, I think that for the physicians, if the rules are made as clear as possible, it will be more easy to seek some physicians that will be willing to do that. But uh, if we are in a gray zone, well, these kind of uh, of problems that are very complex and take time to, to resolve uh, will probably uh, make physicians less willing to do that. So it is, I think, uh, as a society and, and person in charge of decisions, to define the best way possible and the more clear as possible uh, the, the situation for physicians. And they will, they will probably uh, comply with these, uh, these points as soon as they feel that they have the, the, the support of the general population, of the decision makers, and also that they have the tools to do that and the resources to, to provide the service. All right, we will leave it there for now. Dr. Robert, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yves Robert is the secretary of the Collège des Médecins du Québec. We reached Dr. Robert in Montreal. Let me play devil's advocate for a second and say they probably shouldn't have bothered playing devil's advocate. Recently, someone in Iceland attempted to name a child Lucifer with an S. And that diabolical plan didn't come out of nowhere. See, Iceland has something called a naming committee, which is in charge of ensuring all names are acceptably Icelandic. That means they have to conform to Icelandic grammar and history and not be ridiculous. Well, last November, the committee rejected the name Lucifer, spelled the regular way. Of course, it has bad associations, the worst associations, actually. But also, there is no C in the Icelandic alphabet. Well, then someone tried again, this time by trying to name their baby Lucifer with an S. But the naming committee followed its instructions to and passed the letter and rejected the modified version too, because almost clever as it was, The devil is not just in the details. This all reminded us of the time Carol spoke with a 15-year-old Icelandic woman we could not name. Or rather, a 15-year-old Icelandic woman who was not allowed to use her name. In fact, thanks to a disapproving naming committee, her official name was just Girl. So in 2013, she and her mother sued the Icelandic government. Here's part of their conversation from our archives. Well, first of all, I have to ask you, who are you? Me? Yes. What's your name? What do you call yourself? I Blythe. Blythe. And, yeah. And is that, according to the government, is that a legal name? No, it's not. It's uh, my uh, a 
according to the government, my na- on my passport and everything, it stands Stolka, which means girl in Icelandic. And that's what it comes up when my name isn't illegal, you know. It just says girl, Stolka, just girl. That's all you're called, yeah. girl. Yeah. Okay. But- on my card and passport and everything. Now, why does the government control the names that people are able to call their kids? I think it's always been like that. And it's just the old way of Iceland. And I think it's all also in Germany and Denmark. So that's right. In those countries, they say, and there's other places as well, they, they say it's because they want to avoid parents naming their kids things that are kind of stupid names or embarrassing names that they're trying to protect yeah. the children. <laughs> yeah, I was watching an interview and he said, a man said that we shouldn't be naming our kids something that we would get get beaten up by. But <laughs> there are like so few people that ask me about my name. They're, everybody think it, thinks it's so normal. <laughs> Does it mean anything in Icelandic? It means wind. Wind? Yeah. Okay. So No, it's like a breeze. Like a breeze. All right. Yes. Yeah. Bye. Breeze. Yes. Yeah. And do and you like your name? I'm so proud of my name. I love it. Yeah, and it's worth fighting for. And you are going to be the first person who's going to challenge this name business in court. Yeah. 15 years old against the government. It's pretty scary Like when you put it like that. But... Uh, I'm just, I want this so bad. It's so annoying when I've used my card or anything like that. I always have to write Stolka. Girl. Yeah. From our archives, that was Carol talking with Bleich Biaschgardotir in January of 2013. Less than a month later, she won that court battle and the right to call herself Bleich. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.